0: Well, good morning, Creekside. My name is Jake, and I'm on staff here as the student ministries director, um, and I have the privilege of teaching us this morning. Uh, As a church this summer, we've been uh, going through uh, the book of 2 Timothy, and this morning we find ourselves in chapter 3, so you can turn there now uh, in your Bibles, as we'll be reading today's text here uh, in a minute. (coughs) Now, uh, that song that Aaron and uh, the band just played, it's actually quite fitting um, for the text we're going to be looking at this morning Uh, in that song, All My Tears. uh, It mentions death and tears and the wounds of this world, and the song carries this somber tone throughout. Uh, A similar somber tone uh, is carried throughout our text this morning. Um, It's in this section of 2 Timothy Uh, Chapter 3, that the Apostle Paul uses the most ink of any other place in his letter, uh, cataloging the sinfulness of humanity, uh, the brokenness of our world, and the opposition that exists to Christ and his church. Um, So maybe imagine with me, uh, we're doing a dramatic reading of 2 Timothy, which we're not, but imagine. (laughs) Uh, And I had someone come up here and read the letter of 2 Timothy from start to finish, uh, which surprisingly would only take 10 or 15 minutes. Um, and let's say in this dramatic reading we included background music, like, a, like film scores essentially. And we included stage lighting to make it more dramatic. Uh, and it matched the tone of each section of the letter. Uh, it's in this section uh, that we're looking at this morning that the lights would be brought to their dimmest level and the background music would include minor chords and kind of this ominous feeling. So that's our text this morning. If you came already feeling discouraged, this isn't going to cheer you up. So, (laughs) uh, no, obviously I'm joking. Uh, We know all of Scripture is is pointing to uh, the message of Jesus and the hope we have in Him. Uh, And we're going to see that this passage, just like the song that we sung, uh, gives us hope uh, amidst, during our suffering. And like the song, All My Tears Said, the wounds this world left on my soul will all be healed and all be whole. And at the end of the song it says, For my life belongs to him, to Jesus, who, rose, who will raise the dead again. So maybe our mindset should not be, Oh man, this passage is such a downer. Uh, but rather, uh, we could see passages like this as a gift. Um, because the reality is, our world is a mess where people do awful things with one, uh, to, to one another. And the Bible doesn't sugarcoat this reality. It addresses it head on, and it calls us as followers of Jesus uh, to endure and cling to Christ and the hope he provides. So before we stand and and read the nine verses we're looking at this morning, um, I wanted to just mention one thing that this passage, and I think that song, All My Tears, reminds us of. uh, Namely, the tension that we live in during this age. Uh, The tension that uh, theologians will sometimes call the already and not yet. So, for example, Christ has already abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, as we heard Paul say earlier on in 2 Timothy. And through the person and work of Jesus, sin, death, and the enemy have already been defeated. And yet... As we'll see today, we are still living in times of difficulty, in a world where people are awful to one another, and it can seem like the enemy is winning. So uh, here's a helpful quote uh, on this from David Brionis. Uh, he's a New Testament scholar at Westminster Theological Seminary. Uh, yeah, the quote's here are on the screen. Um, it talks about this already and not yet tension. For now, Christians live in a great, in a great theological tension. We already possess every spiritual blessing in Christ, but we do not experience the fullness of these blessings yet. In one sense, we are already adopted, already redeemed, already sanctified, already saved, but in another sense, these experiences are not yet fully ours. Underneath this theological and practical tension are the two comings of Christ. In his first coming, he inaugurated the last days. In his second coming, he will complete them. And in the meantime, we live for now in the overlap of the ages. The passage today uh, deals with this tension, uh, this overlap, this experience of living between Christ's first and second coming. Um, so, for the second or for the note takers among us, I've outlined the sermon as follows: uh, first, a portrait of a, of the life that is in Christ; secondly, a portrait of a life without Christ; and then, lastly the prevailing power of Christ and his life. So why don't, you, uh, why don't we uh, stand out of respect of, for God's word, and then I'll read Second um, Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, uh, and then I'll pray for our time and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get into it. So it says this, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, Abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous. Without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, Burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Let me pray. God, we just thank you for your word, thank you for passages even like this that deal with the sinfulness of our own hearts and the world that we live in as we await your second coming. uh, Would you speak to your people, help me to just get out of the way and you would do your work Um, so we are expectant and we look forward to what you're going to do through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can be seated. So... um, yeah, one, so one thing I, I believe uh, Paul is doing in these nine verses we're looking at is he's providing a, a stark contrast of two things. To, and he's giving this contrast to his dear friend, his, uh, his disciple in the faith, the young Timothy, uh, who Paul is writing this letter to. And he's contrasting the life that is found in Jesus with a life without Jesus. Uh, we see Paul in the first couple chapters reminding Timothy of his calling, what Jesus has done and the life that he is to live into and call others to live into as he pastors the church in Ephesus. While the life that is described in chapter 3 is the opposite, that's the contrast, what life without God looks like, a life that is self-directed, motivated by disordered loves, and burdened with the guilt and the shame of sin. So let's take a look at this contrast, and I'm going to start by just highlighting a number of verses uh, from the first couple chapters of 2 Timothy that describe and and paint a picture of what this life in Christ uh, looks like. Um, So you can kind of follow along in in your Bibles as I kind of go through these quickly. Verse 1. Chapter 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul introduces this idea that there is this life that is found in Jesus at the very opening of the letter. If you go down to verse 10 of chapter 1, it says this, and which now has been manifested, which Paul's talking about the gospel message, has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death. And brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So again, mentioning the, through Christ that there is this life that is offered to us. And What does that life look like? Look at verse 7 um, of chapter 1. It's a life where we are given a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. In verse 8, it's a life where we're not ashamed of Jesus or his followers. In verse 9 of chapter 1, it's a life of purpose. We are called to a holy calling. In verse 14, it's a a Holy Spirit indwelt life. In chapter 2 of verse 1, it is a life that is strengthened by not our own willpower or discipline or whatever, but it's strengthened by, what does it say in the text in in verse 1? The grace that is found uh, that is in Christ Jesus. In verse 3 of chapter 2, it's a life that shares in suffering just as Jesus and his followers have suffered. It's in verse 10 of chapter 2, a life that endures hardship for the good and the salvation of others, a life of sacrifice. In verses 14 through 23, it's a life that is not quarrelsome or engages in hostile arguments about the things that detract us from the gospel. So we avoid worldly and empty chatter that would take our eyes off of Jesus so that there is this fixed and steady gaze and steady focus on the person and the work of Christ. In verse 21 of chapter 2, it's a life that involves cleansing yourself from what is dishonorable. Also in verse 21, it's ready for every good work. There's this eagerness. In verse 22, we're we're running away from something and running towards something. We are fleeing youthful passions, and we are pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace. So it's a life in Christ where we're actively seeking to see his kingdom be established in the here and now. In verse 24, it's a life that is kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. In verse 25, it's a life that corrects opponents with gentleness. So when you see someone leading others away from Christ you're able to correct that and steer them back with a spirit of gentleness kindness and patience so there it is a, a, a brief portrait of someone who found themselves and their life in Christ it's obviously not an exhaustive list or a comprehensive description uh, but rather a vision of what uh, of living into your calling as a Jesus follower. Um, So with with that in our minds, let's see the contrast and and start to paint a picture of a life without Christ, starting in chapter 3, the text that we have this morning. Um, But before we do that, just one quick comment about verse number 1 in chapter 3 and the phrase, the last days, um, that's mentioned there. I I can imagine for some of us, uh, when you hear maybe the last days, our initial thought is like the mark of the beast, the antichrist, end times prophecy, maybe the Left Behind series from the early 2000s. Anybody remember that? Um, I want to argue that the the last days um, phrase that Paul is using here, it's not prophesying something that's going to happen in the future, uh, but rather it is the time we live in now, and also the time that Paul and Timothy were living in. In other words, the last days is the time uh, between Jesus' first and second coming. So, two two just like scripture references briefly to support this, and then we'll move on. Um, in, in Acts 2, uh, verses 14 through 17, we don't have uh, time to, uh, or you don't have to turn there. You can turn there if you want, um, but it's going to be on the screen. So, uh, in this passage, uh, Jesus has risen from the dead. He has ascended to heaven. Um, his followers have just received the gift of the Holy Spirit at the Feast of Pentecost, and... Uh, this is, this is it. But Peter, standing with the eleven disciples, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So uh, as the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus' followers, they started speaking in tongues in different languages. And as people listened in, and they didn't understand the languages, they were like, oh my goodness, this group of people are drunk. And Peter addresses everyone and says, no, we are, we're not drunk. Uh, this is actually what's happening. And he quotes from the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. Um, and in the last days, so there's that phrase, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So in Peter's mind, the last days, and it continues, in the last days refers to uh, the time when the Holy Spirit was given to uh, Jesus' followers. The second passage is Hebrews uh, chapter 1, the first couple of verses. It um, says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So God spoke to his people uh, in the books of the Old Testament that we have. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world, so to the author of Hebrews, uh, the last days is reference to uh, it 's between christ 's first coming and his second, so uh, that 's where that 's kind of how i 'm interpreting it. Um, you might disagree with that, but just wanted to kind of uh, share that with you, and then we can kind of move back into the passage so uh, back to the back to the passage uh, in verses two through five, uh, there are nineteen characteristics. Uh, that illustrate people that are living in these last days or right now. I found it helpful to kind of view this list of vices uh, more as a portrait, or maybe you could say like a collage of humanity um, apart from Christ. Paul doesn't necessarily define one particular person, like one person has all these attributes, but this is illustrative of of what human nature descends into without God. So the commentators, the Bible experts that I looked at as I studied this passage, talked about how these vice lists, which is kind of, it's hard to say vice lists, and uh, their opposite virtue lists, uh, which show up in other places in the New Testament. Are drawing, They're drawing from a common literary technique uh, in ancient times that characterize and contrast two ways of living. So, as one expert said. Lists of vices are characterizations of those who walk according to the flesh, while virtue lists display the character of those who walk according to the spirit, the gospel life in Christian community. So what I, found, what I find interesting about this passage is that it seems that Paul does get to talking about specific people and a specific situation that's happening in Ephesus, uh, you know, the church that Timothy was pastoring at, but I don't think that happens until verse 6, which we'll look at later. Uh, where Paul talks about those who creep their way into households. Um, in other words, Paul is saying that these uh, these creepers, <laughs> that uh, these creepers that that Paul knows about and Timothy knows about, they're a subset of this caricature that illustrates sinful humanity in verses two through five. So maybe maybe imagine. Um, uh, verses two through five being like an assortment of like framed pictures that are like set on easels on the stage here, um, and these pictures represent what sinful humanity is capable capable of. Um, and after you read verses two through five, you see step out from among the pictures that these framed pictures uh, on the stage. You see step up, fr- step up, step out from the pictures. Uh, real people from the ancient city of Ephesus. And um, that Paul has in mind. So people who fit, they fit very well into the the portrait and the collage that is set up here. It's like, oh yeah, you seem like you kind of belong <laughs> in that. It's a subset of of. Of this so that's kind of that's how I'm interpreting it um, that's kind of what I saw in the text as I studied it um, so maybe that image is helpful to you and if it's not you can just you' like I have no idea what Jake just said that was weird um, <laughs> you can just throw that away <laughs> uh, so with with that image in mind um, let's look at the list uh, we don't have time this morning to describe all 19 characteristics if that's what you're thinking is about to happen where I you know try to come up with examples of what that you know, vice or behavior would look like. But rather, what I want to do is just make one significant observation about how the list is organized, and then I want to elaborate on uh, just a few of the characteristics that are mentioned. So, uh, first, the significant observation is the fact that all of these characteristics or vices are framed around what these people love in the last days. And all the commentators I looked at uh, uh, mentioned this. So in verses two, you see, uh, people in the last days will be lovers of self, lovers of money. And verse four, uh, the second the, the end of the frame, labor uh, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So the places in which um, these people direct their hearts and affections provide the framework, the start, and the finish for everything else. Um, I, think, I think one thing that is being communicated in this list is that placing our love in the wrong direction and the wrong places screws everything up. Um, when we love the wrong thing, our behavior and our character gets all jacked up. Think about what Jesus said is the greatest commandment. When he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And his response was, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. So it's easy to get lost in a a long list of sins like this one we have here in uh, 2 Timothy 3, Uh, but I think it's far easier to pay attention to just one thing and one question, and that's uh, what do you love? So could it be that Paul, through the way he organized this long list, is communicating how important it is to put our love in the right place, namely, as we see at the end, loving God. If we get this wrong, if we direct our love inward and our primary affection is for my life and what I can get from it, then could it be that Paul's trying to say that our humanity completely unravels and all these nasty behaviors in this list show up, that our hearts shrink and we morph into something far more animal-like and predatory um, than bearing the image of God as humans uh, were intended to do. So, Creekside, I ask you the rather kind of blunt question: um, Are you a lover of God? Do you desire to spend time with Him? Do you want to spend? Do you want to know more about who He is, what He's all about, and His work in the world? Um, Are you in awe of Him and His beauty and glory, and desire to gaze upon that beauty? Are you committed to Him? And you wake up daily reminding yourself, I belong to Jesus my entire life. And I don't bring up these questions um, to condemn at all, because I know how weak and measly my love is (laughs) for God. Um, But rather, I think the first step towards growing in our love for God is just waking up to the fact that maybe I don't really love him all that much. And my affection my, and my heart is found in the wrong places. So if this is you uh, this morning and the Spirit impresses that upon your heart, that your love is misdirected, your love is disordered, um, this is good news. God already knows that's where your heart's at. Um, and he's waiting for you and wants you to return to him and start loving him like he loves you. Um, so we're going to talk more about this kind of later on. Um, uh, so let's just kind of put a pin in that discussion for now, and, and we'll get back into it. So let's, let's get back into the list. The list, again, is framed around what these people love. And then also, the first set of words that I, ha- I want to highlight is, are the words proud and arrogant, which are the first two that come after uh, lovers of uh, self and lovers of money. And also, the, the last phrase, swollen with conceit, that's found in the middle of verse four. Um, I, one thing I found interesting is all three of these words carry a, a similar meaning. you know, pride, arrogance, conceit, that there is this self-focused, puffed-up nature that loves oneself more than God and others. Um, so I think, as I've kind of looked at the organization of this list, it's like, framed around what you love, inside that frame is pride, arrogance, conceit. It's kind of like a frame within a frame as it gets closer to like the middle of what the behaviors look like. Um, the, the next word I want to uh, spend some time on is that third word in the third verse, uh, which is the word slanderous. Um, I think the New American Standard version, I know some of us use that translation of the Bible, uh, translated as malicious gossips, um, and the reason I want to take some time on, on this word is I think Paul wants this to stand out. And it doesn't show up in our English translations, but the four characteristics or four words that are leading up to slanderous and then the three words that follow slanderous all start with the same Greek letter alpha. So this Greek letter has the same usage as maybe our prefixes, uh, like un or non. And that's why you see like unholy, ungrateful. Um, but not all of the words before slanderous and after the four before and the three after start with un because you can't like it kind of gets difficult to make it un unheart you know in verse three or without a, you know it just so the the translators kind of uh, made a decision to not keep that rhetorical device that Paul is using. So if this list of vices was maybe what was being read to its origi- as it was being read to its original audience, that repetition of sound would have been hard to miss. Um, there would have, you would have been hearing ah something. Now I'm not going to try to pronounce the Greek words because I would totally botch them. But they would all start with ah, with uh, the Greek uh, letter alpha. So it would be four times in a row like that, and then the word slanderous. And then three more words that start with that. So there's this, this pattern and repetition and sound. And what that would do is the word slanderous breaks the pattern. So it would obviously make that word rise to the surface. Um, and it would be like, well, one of these things is not like the other. And it's the word slanderous. Um, so I think Paul is trying to, like, um, when he wrote this to Timothy, uh, highlight that particular word. And in Greek... Um, try to pronounce this one, uh, the word slanderous is diaboloi, diaboloi, where we get uh, diablo or the devil. Um, and the devil is the ultimate slanderer and accuser. So according to some Bible dictionaries I was using, um, the slander, slanderous means falsely accusing, unjustly criticizing, to hurt, malign, condemn, and sever a relationship. By highlighting this word using this rhetorical device, could Paul be reminding us of the enemy's work in the world and his influence that causes all these nasty human behaviors? And could he be using it as a warning and a wake up call to us to take this stuff seriously and to not get caught up in the enemy's schemes? Because this is, yeah, this is serious stuff. Another word I want to highlight. And I think builds on Paul's warning to us to recognize the enemy's work in our world and in our hearts is the word treacherous, uh, which is the first word in verse 4. So similarly, I think Paul wanted that word to stand out more than the others. And the reason for this is because all the other words are adjectives in Greek, and that one is in a noun form. Um, So a literal translation across would have read traitor or betrayer instead of treacherous, someone who is treacherous. So you can imagine the list being read aloud to its original audience, and then you, hear, you just hear a list of adjectives describing a person. And then suddenly there's just this forceful noun that sticks out that doesn't fit in with the rest, and uh, that's the word treacherous. Um, and this, this word is used in two other places in the New Testament. Once it's in reference to Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, And once it's used in reference to the people who were executing Stephen, who was the the first Christian martyr. So, again, I think Paul Paul is using this technique as a warning, again, and a wake-up call, that the enemy is at work. Don't get caught up in this. Um, This is dangerous and scary stuff. So it's an ugly picture. If we were to go through all of them and describe each characteristic, it's an ugly picture when we don't love God, and it's an ugly picture when we let the enemy have his work in our lives. And when our center of gravity becomes something other than God, it's catastrophe ensues. It's not pretty. Um, so let's look, at, let's look at verse 5 now. Um, verse, verse 5 says, Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. So as Paul's description continues, our minds are brought to think about people within the church. Up until that point, there was no uh, reason to think that we were dealing with people in the church, but this phrase definitely changes that. Um, These people, Paul is describing, have the form or the appearance of godliness. So in other words, they're doing all the right religious things, they're going through the motions, they're saying all the right Christian jargon, but they deny the power of the gospel. They deny Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, and uh, they deny the power of the Holy Spirit. And what does Paul tell Timothy to do with these people? He calls them to avoid them. Uh, it's a harsh command. And I think this command to Timothy requires a bit of nuance. Because um, back at the end of chapter 2, uh, verse 25, you can look there, Paul tells Timothy, Correct your opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth. Uh, of the truth um so clearly timothy and by extension us today um should not avoid any person who opposes us but we should engage with gentleness and patience um also look at chapter 4 of 2nd timothy verse 5 um paul in that verse uh as for you always be sober-minded endure suffering do the work of an evangelist fulfill your ministry um So Paul calls Timothy to do the work of an evangelist, which, in other words, is someone who shares the good news with those who haven't heard, reaches out uh, to those outside of Christ and the life he offers. So clearly, we have to have a kind of a balanced approach to this avoid them um, command. And I think Paul's command to avoid such people is a a narrow category. And I think Paul describes uh, some people that are in that category In the next verse, so we can look at that one now in verse uh, 6, and we'll do verse 7. For among them, so among these people in the last days uh, that have disordered loves and they have this empty religion, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive a knowledge of the truth so let's let's tackle these two verses um upon first read uh it, it it may seem like like it did to me uh that this is it's a pretty it seems like a pretty derogatory perspective towards women um did anybody else feel that maybe when you're reading it um so let's not read these verses wrong because it's not doing that um So don't read this as, well, of course it's the women who are being captured by false teaching. They're so gullible, unlike us men. Uh, Don't think it's saying that. Uh, And don't also read this as, well, of course it's the women who are always learning and never are able to arrive at the truth. That's just how women are. Good thing they got us men around to hold their hands and explain things their little brains can't understand. Uh, (laughs) Clearly... (laughs) Clearly, that is not uh, what the text is saying. Because we know from Scripture, we know. Uh, well, before I say that, we know we know that Scripture can be easily wielded to say harmful things. And just because you can use a Bible verse to do that, doesn't mean that is what Scripture is actually saying. And then, secondly, we know from Scripture that both men and women bear God's image; that women are equally valued and equally loved by God, our Creator. We also know there's nothing inherently inferior about women or that the mental capacity of a man is in a superior category. Um, If anything, maybe it's the other way around. (laughs) Uh, uh, So please, let's not read these verses like that. Um, So if that's maybe the that that is the wrong way to read it, um, what's the right way? And this is my perspective. I think Paul is mentioning a specific situation that is happening in Ephesus where a group of women... And it could have been men, but in this particular situation, it was a group of women. They were being deceived by these false teachers that Paul has been talking about. So this is Paul describing facts on the ground, a particular trend that was happening in the church of Ephesus. And Paul isn't trying to teach Timothy universal principles about women or differences in gender. Here, Paul is trying to help Timothy with a real problem that's happening in the church in Ephesus. Um, so that's kind of how I see it. And how are these women described? Uh, it's, it's not good. Uh, and I think it's instructive, and it's a warning actually for all of us, no matter men or women. It's instructive for, instructive for all of us this morning. So first, this group that is being led astray by the false teachers are described as weak. Um, now this Greek word that's translated as weak could also be translated little or immature. In other words... These women were acting like children and not grown adults. They were being childish, self-centered, and naive. And I think Paul is saying, like, hey, in a way, like, let's stop acting like that. Don't be deceived by these false teachers. Second, these, these women are burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. So these women were weighed down by past failures and the guilt and the shame of sin. So these past offenses were that they had committed were heaped up on their shoulders and they were trapped under the weight of it and they were looking to anything or anyone to give them the answer how they could be freed from this weight and it's tragic that they turned to these false teachers that did not preach Christ because we know Christ offers us that freedom but they were just leading them astray and also these women, they didn't have a moral compass or a disciplined life of principles and ethics, but rather they just did the things that felt good in the moment and the desires of the flesh that controlled them. They're also described as always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. And this is also tragic because there's this eagerness to learn and um, eagerness to learn and find the answer, but they're never brought before the foot of the cross. Their learning never brought them to the saving message of Jesus and a life of faith in him. Rather, they were deceived by these Christian phonies who seemed like a Jesus follower on the outside, but their message, once you got past all the smoke and mirrors, was just empty and self-centered and self-serving. And that's where they ended up landing. So how does, how does, how does this apply to us? Um, how can we protect ourselves from being deceived by false teaching? Because the false teaching was happening back in 2,000 years ago in the church of Ephesus, and it still happens today. So it's interesting to see how the sin... This, and this was kind of a, uh, something I definitely learned from this passage. It's interesting to see how the sin and the guilt and shame of these women made them vulnerable and made them susceptible to following the false teaching. My mind usually doesn't go there. So if, if we have unconfessed sin... Um, this morning that we have not brought before Jesus, do that today. Because uh, and, and we're going to be uh, partaking in the Lord's Supper. We're going to have communion. That's a great time to do that, to bring that, that guilt and that shame and that sin to Christ and let him take it so you can be freed of it. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it's interesting that, that that has actually made them more susceptible and vulnerable to being led astray. Um, so for us, cleansing ourselves of sin by bringing it to the cross... And then begin following Jesus again in that area of your life. Um, this will help protect us from listening to the wrong voices, um, which is a teaching that I is definitely something that I took away from this study also it 's instructive to us to see that the amount of time in study does not equate to you getting closer to the gospel, so it is possible to be always filling your mind with things found in the Bible, or things from Christian culture, or maybe things that seem Christian, but ultimately it never gets you to the knowledge of, of the truth, a knowledge that makes one wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. Um, so may we be a church that focuses our attention on, on the historic and apostolic message of the gospel, which is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures; that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And may that may we never swerve from that, because that is the thing that that is the message that transforms. Um, so let's let's look at uh, verses eight and nine now. Um, and uh, it, I think it's it's important. Um, it is important that we are aware of the threats against us. Um, in fact, Paul finds it important to warn, warn Timothy of these things, to warn Timothy of the false teachers, um, to not be naive. Like the first verse, I kind of get that feeling. Like, understand this. You're living in difficult times, and people will be like this. So don't be naive. Um, understand this is, the, this is the world that we live in. So Paul warns... Timothy and and calls Timothy to warn the church about it. And we should take that to heart as well. So it's big enough to mention, but Paul um, tells Timothy and the Spirit tells us today that we shouldn't overreact against or obsess over the threat. And why? Because in verse 9, we know the end of the story. Uh, We know that the false teachers and the enemy and sin will only get so far. So we should be aware. Uh, but we shouldn't overreact or obsess over this. So, verse 8 and 9 says, Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. When I first read this passage, I was like, Who the heck are Janus and Jambres? I have no idea. This is like, I am so confused. Uh, But it's actually a really cool comparison, once you find out, that Paul is making by referencing a story from early on in the story of God's people. Um, So, according to Jewish and Christian tradition, Janus and Jambres uh, were the magicians, or the sorcerers, uh, who opposed Moses before Pharaoh in Exodus uh, 7. Uh, so, you know, the characters in uh, the movie Prince of Egypt, have you seen that one? Okay. Uh, it's the, the the characters who are voiced by Steve Martin and Martin Short. Okay. <laughs> what, one of them is like tall and skinny. The other one's uh, short and fat in the movie. And uh, that's Janice and Jambres. So maybe if you've seen Prince of Egypt, it's a great movie. Uh, maybe that helps you. So they're, they're the guys when Moses uh, threw down Aaron's rod and it became a snake. Janice and Jambres did the exact same thing. They, they took their rods and like, hey, we can match this. Boom. And their rods, walking sticks, become snakes. And what happens in, in Exodus 7? Do you guys remember? Uh, what? Uh, he yeah, yeah. The, the the staff that Moses put down and turned into the snake swallowed up the, the snakes that Janice and Jambres put down, which is a super, super powerful message. Um, of of uh, these false teachers, and Janus and Jambres continued to op- oppose Moses. If you go back to read ex- Exodus seven, and they tried to mimic the plagues that were being sent by God to Egypt through Moses, um, but they could not match the power or fully replicate the miracles. They tried and they kind of succeeded, but it, it only got so far. They only were able to accomplish so much. So the false teachers in Ephesus uh, were similar. Janus and Jambres did miracles similar to Moses, and the false teachers in Ephesus, they would say and do things that were similar to Paul and his ministry, similar to the teachers of the truth of the gospel, but ultimately, these false teachers oppose the truth. They capture and enslave their followers, and their teaching leads to death and defeat. So verse 9, these false teachers that are creeping into households will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. So the folly of Janus and Jambres was exposed. Their folly was exposed. And the folly the folly of these false teachers in Ephesus and the false teachers of our day will be exposed as well, which is good news. There's great hope in that. So uh, Creekside, as we as we uh, look to wrap up, um, how are we how are we doing um, in these difficult last days that we live in? Are we are we naive uh, to the enemy's activity, the sin in our own hearts? Do we even understand that these are the times that we live in today in 2022? Also, what are we doing to ensure that we don't get sucked into the vortex of this ugly portrait of sinful humanity? Do we we blend more into the portrait that is painted in these nine verses that we looked at this morning, or do we resemble more closely to the life that is found in Christ? The life that was briefly described at the beginning through chapters 1 and 2 of 2 Timothy. So, with... With those questions uh, lingering in your mind, uh, I do want to call Aaron and the team back up. And I also want to take some time to prepare our, our hearts and our minds for a time of partaking in the Lord's Supper, um, communion. Um, to do that, I, I want to uh, call us back to when we were discuss, discuss the, <laughs> discussing the question of what do you love? Um, If it is true that our behavior and the way that we live our lives finds its source in what our hearts love, then this question becomes crucial for us. So what is your first and primary love this morning? Is it Christ or is it something or someone else? No matter if you've been following Jesus for seven days or seven decades, we can all grow in our love for our Savior. We can all grow in our love for Jesus. And I think what better practice than communion to remind us of who God is and what he has done for us. And I think growing, growing in love for someone entails taking time to receive love from them. So listen to what the Apostle John, a disciple of Jesus, says in um, 1 John 4, uh, verses 7 through 11, and then uh, verse 19. It says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then if we skip down to verse 19 of that chapter, it says, we love because he first loved us. So as we take communion uh, together this morning, let us receive this love from God. This love that he initiated. He loves you before you loved him. So when he calls us to love him, He got it all started. He loves you even if you don't love him at all. Maybe if you're not in Christ and you don't love God, he still loves you. And because of this love for you, God sent his only son to this broken, sinful world so that you might have his life, that you might live through him, as 1 John says. He sent his only son as a sacrifice, dying a death on the cross to atone for your sins a sacrifice to clear away your sins and the guilt and the shame and the condemnation that comes with it. He sent his son as a sacrifice to clear away the damage that you have done to your relationship with him so that you might have life in him, so that your life might look more like Jesus and less like the first nine verses of 2 Timothy that we looked at today. So this this bread and this cup that we partake in as a church family, it points our hearts and our minds to the body and the blood of Jesus. As we eat the bread, as we drink the cup together, we are saying by faith that we receive the gift of Christ. We are asking him to cleanse us of our sin and unite us to himself and unite us to one another. So may this be a time uh, that your love for Jesus grows warmer, that this time is a time where your love grows stronger and your love grows more committed to Christ. So if you're in Christ, if you have given yourself to him, I invite you uh, to come grab the elements, uh, the bread and the cup, and then return to your seat. Um, And then after everyone has had a a chance to grab the elements, um, I will come back up here and lead us in a time where we eat of the bread And drink of the cup together. Well, good morning, Creekside. My name is Jake, and I'm on staff here as the student ministries director, um, and I have the privilege of teaching us this morning. Uh, As a church this summer, we've been uh, going through uh, the book of 2 Timothy, and this morning we find ourselves in chapter 3, so you can turn there now uh, in your Bibles, as we'll be reading today's text here uh, in a minute. Now, uh, that song that Aaron and uh, the band just played, it's actually quite fitting um, for the text we're going to be looking at this morning Uh, in that song, All My Tears. uh, It mentions death and tears and the wounds of this world, and the song carries this somber tone throughout. Uh, A similar somber tone uh, is carried throughout our text this morning. Um, it's in this section of Second Timothy, uh, chapter 3, that the Apostle Paul uses the most ink of any other place in his letter, uh, cataloging the sinfulness of humanity, uh, the brokenness of our world, and the opposition that exists to Christ and his church. Um, so maybe imagine with me, uh, we're doing a dramatic reading of Second Timothy, which we're not, but imagine... <laughs> Uh, And I had someone come up here and read the letter of 2 Timothy from start to finish, uh, which surprisingly would only take 10 or 15 minutes. Um, And let's say in this dramatic reading, we included background music, like like film scores, essentially. And we included stage lighting to make it more dramatic. Uh, And it matched the tone of each section of the letter. Uh, It's in this section... Uh, that we're looking at this morning, that the lights would be brought to their dimmest level, and the background music would include minor chords and kind of this ominous feeling. So that's our text this morning. If you came already feeling discouraged, this isn't going to cheer you up. So, um, no, obviously I'm joking. Uh, We know all of Scripture is is pointing to uh, the message of Jesus and the hope we have in Him. Uh, And we're going to see that this passage, just like the song that we sung, uh, gives us hope uh, amidst, during our suffering. And like the song, All My Tears Said, The wounds this world left on my soul will all be healed and all be whole. And at the end of the song it says, For my life belongs to him, to Jesus, who who will raise the dead again. So maybe our mindset should not be, oh man, this passage is such a downer. Uh, but rather, uh, we could see passages like this as a gift, um, because the reality is our world is a mess where people do awful things with one, uh, to, to one another, and the Bible doesn't sugarcoat this reality. <clears throat> it addresses it head on, and it calls us as followers of Jesus uh, to endure and cling to Christ and the hope he provides So before we stand and read the nine verses we're looking at this morning, um, I wanted to just mention one thing that this passage and I think that song, All My Tears, reminds us of, uh, namely the tension that we live in during this age. Uh, The tension that uh, theologians will sometimes call the already and not yet. So, for example, Christ has already abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, as we heard Paul say earlier on in 2 Timothy. And through the person and work of Jesus, sin, death, and the enemy have already been defeated. And yet, as we'll see today, we are still living in times of difficulty, in a world where people are awful to one another, and it can seem like the enemy is winning. So uh, here's a helpful quote uh, on this from David Brionis. Uh, he's a New Testament scholar at Westminster Theological Seminary. Uh, yeah, the quote's here on the screen. Um, it talks about this already and not yet tension. For now, Christians live in a, great, in a great theological tension. We already possess every spiritual blessing in Christ, but we do not experience the fullness of these blessings yet. In one sense, we are already adopted, already redeemed, already sanctified, already saved. But in another sense, these experiences are not yet fully ours. Underneath this theological and practical tension are the two comings of Christ. In his first coming, he inaugurated the last days. In his second coming, he will complete them. And in the meantime, we live for now in the overlap of the ages. The passage today uh, deals with this tension, uh, this overlap, this experience of living between Christ's first and second coming. Um, so for the, second, or for the note-takers among us, I've outlined the sermon as follows. Uh, first, a portrait of, a, of the life that is in Christ. Secondly, a portrait of a life without Christ. And then lastly, the prevailing power of Christ and his life. So, why don't, you, uh, why don't we uh, stand out of respect of, for God's word, and then I'll read Second um, Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, uh, and then I'll pray for our time and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get into it. So, it says this, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women Burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Let me pray. God, we just thank you for your word. Thank you for passages even like this that deal with the sinfulness of our own hearts and the world that we live in as we await your second coming. uh, Would you speak to your people? Help me to just get out of the way and you would do your work. Um, So we are expectant and we look forward to what you're going to do through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can be seated. So, yeah, one, so one thing I, I believe uh, Paul is doing in these nine verses we're looking at is he's providing a, a stark contrast of two things. To, and he's giving this contrast to his dear friend, his, uh, his disciple in the faith, the young Timothy, uh, who Paul is writing this letter to. And he's contrasting the life that is found in Jesus with a life without Jesus. Uh, We see Paul in the first couple chapters reminding Timothy of his calling, what Jesus has done and the life that he is to live into and call others to live into as he pastors the church in Ephesus. While the life that is described in chapter 3 is the opposite, that's the contrast, what life without God looks like, a life that is self-directed, motivated by disordered loves, and burdened with the guilt and the shame of sin. So let's take a look at this contrast, and I'm going to start by just highlighting a number of verses uh, from the first couple chapters of 2 Timothy that describe and and paint a picture of what this life in Christ uh, looks like. Um, So you can kind of follow along in in your Bibles as I kind of go through these quickly. Verse 1. Chapter 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul introduces this idea that there is this life that is found in Jesus at the very opening of the letter. If you go down to verse 10 of chapter 1, it says this, and which now has been manifested, which Paul's talking about the gospel message, has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death And brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So again, mentioning through Christ that there is this life that is offered to us. What does that life look like? Look at verse 7 of chapter 1. It's a life where we are given a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. In verse 8, it's a life where we're not ashamed of Jesus or his followers. In verse 9 of chapter 1, it's a life of purpose. We are called to a holy calling. In verse 14, it's a a Holy Spirit indwelt life. In chapter 2 of verse 1, it is a life that is strengthened by not our own willpower or discipline or whatever, but it's strengthened by, what does it say in the text in in verse 1? The grace that is found uh, that is in Christ Jesus. In verse 3 of chapter 2, it's a life that shares in suffering just as Jesus and his followers have suffered. It's in verse 10 of chapter 2, a life that endures hardship for the good and the salvation of others, a life of sacrifice. In verses 14 through 23, it's a life that is not quarrelsome or engages in hostile arguments about the things that detract us from the gospel. So we avoid worldly and empty chatter that would take our eyes off of Jesus so that there is this fixed and steady gaze and steady focus on the person and the work of Christ. In verse 21 of chapter 2, it's a life that involves cleansing yourself from what is dishonorable. Also in verse 21, it's ready for every good work. There's this eagerness. In verse 22, we're we're running away from something and running towards something. We are fleeing youthful passions, and we are pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace. So it's a life in Christ where we're actively seeking to see his kingdom be established in the here and now. In verse 24, it's a life that is kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. In verse 25, it's a life that corrects opponents with gentleness. So when you see someone leading others away from Christ, you're able to correct that and steer them back with a spirit of gentleness, kindness, and patience. So there it is, a, a, a brief portrait of someone who found themselves and their life in Christ. It's obviously not an exhaustive list or a comprehensive description, uh, but rather a vision of what uh, of living into your calling as a Jesus follower. Um, So, with with that in our minds, let's see the contrast and and start to paint a picture of a life without Christ, starting in chapter 3, the text that we have this morning. Um, But before we do that, just one quick comment about verse number 1 in chapter 3 and the phrase, the last days, um, that's mentioned there. I I can imagine for some of us, uh, when you hear maybe the last days, our initial thought is like the mark of the beast, the antichrist, end times prophecy, maybe the Left Behind series from the early 2000s. Anybody remember that? Um, I want to argue that the the last days um, phrase that Paul is using here, it's not prophesying something that's going to happen in the future, uh, but rather it is the time we live in now, and also the time that Paul and Timothy were living in. In other words, the last days is the time uh, between Jesus' first and second coming. So, two two just like scripture references briefly to support this, and then we'll move on. Um, in, in Acts 2, uh, verses 14 through 17, we don't have uh, time to, uh, or you don't have to turn there. You can turn there if you want, um, but it's going to be on the screen. So, uh, in this passage, uh, Jesus has risen from the dead. He has ascended to heaven. Um, his followers have just received the gift of the Holy Spirit at the Feast of Pentecost, and... Uh, this is, this is it. But Peter, standing with the eleven disciples, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So uh, as the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus' followers, they started speaking in tongues in different languages. And as people listened in, and they didn't understand the languages, they were like, oh my goodness, this group of people are drunk. And Peter addresses everyone and says, no, we are, we're not drunk. Uh, this is actually what's happening. And he quotes from the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. Um, and in the last days, so there's that phrase, in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So in Peter's mind, the last days, and it continues, in the last days, refers to uh, the time when the Holy Spirit was given to uh, Jesus' followers. The second passage is Hebrews uh, chapter 1, the first couple of verses. It um, says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So God spoke to his people uh, in the books of the Old Testament that we have. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So to the author of Hebrews, uh, the last days is reference to uh, it's between Christ's first coming and his second. So uh, that's where that's kind of how I'm interpreting it. Um, you might disagree with that, but just wanted to kind of uh, share that with you, and then we can kind of move back into the passage. So uh, back to the back to the passage uh, in verses two through five, uh, there are nineteen characteristics. Uh, that illustrate people that are living in these last days or right now. I found it helpful to kind of view this list of vices uh, more as a portrait, or maybe you could say like a collage of humanity um, apart from Christ. Paul doesn't necessarily define one particular person, like one person has all these attributes, but this is illustrative of of what human nature descends into without God. So, the commentators, the Bible experts that I looked at as I studied this passage talked about how these vice lists, which is kind of it 's hard to say vice lists, <laughs> and uh, their opposite virtue lists uh, which show up in other places in the New testament, are drawing they 're drawing from a common literary technique uh, in ancient times that characterize and contrast two ways of living, so as one expert said. Lists of vices are characterizations of those who walk according to the flesh, while virtue lists display the character of those who walk according to the spirit, the gospel life and Christian community. So what I, found, what I find interesting about this passage is that it seems that Paul does get to talking about specific people and a specific situation that's happening in Ephesus, uh, you know, the church that Timothy was pastoring at, but I don't think that happens until verse 6, which we'll look at later. Uh, where Paul talks about those who creep their way into households. Um, in other words, Paul is saying that these uh, these creepers, <laughs> that uh, these creepers that that Paul knows about and Timothy knows about, they're a subset of this caricature that illustrates sinful humanity in verses two through five. So maybe maybe imagine. Um, uh, verses two through five being like an assortment of like framed pictures that are like set on easels on the stage here, um, and these pictures represent what sinful humanity is capable capable of. Um, and after you read verses two through five, you see step out from among the pictures that these framed pictures uh, on the stage. You see step up, fr- step up, step out from the pictures. Uh, real people from the ancient city of Ephesus. And um, that Paul has in mind. So people who fit, they fit very well into the the portrait and the collage that is set up here. It's like, oh yeah, you seem like you kind of belong <laughs> in that. It's a subset of of, of this. So that's kind of, that's how I'm interpreting it. Um, that's kind of what I saw in the text as I studied it. Um, so maybe that image is helpful to you. And if it's not, you can just, you're like, I have no idea what Jake just said, that was weird. Um, <laughs> you can just throw that away. <laughs> uh, So, with that that image in mind, um, let's look at the list. Uh, We don't have time this morning to describe all 19 characteristics, if that's what you're thinking is about to happen, where I, you know, try to come up with examples of what that, you know, vice or behavior would look like, but rather what I want to do is just make one significant observation about how the list is organized, and then I want to elaborate on uh, just a few of the characteristics that are mentioned. So uh, first, the significant observation is the fact that all of these characteristics or vices are, are they're framed around what these people love in the last days. And all the commentators I looked at uh, uh, mentioned this. So in verses 2, you see uh, people in the last days will be lovers of self, lovers of money. And verse 4 uh, the second, the, the end of the frame, labor, uh, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So the places in which um, these people direct their hearts and affections provide the framework, the start and the finish for everything else. Um, I, think, I think one thing that is being communicated in this list is that placing our love in the wrong direction and the wrong places screws everything up. Um, when we love the wrong thing, our behavior and our character gets all jacked up. Think about what Jesus said is the greatest commandment. When he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And his response was, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. So it's easy to get lost in a, in a long list of sins like this one we have here in Second uh, Timothy 3. Uh, but I think it's far easier to pay attention to just one thing and one question, and that's, uh, what do you love? So could it be that Paul, through the way he organized this long list, is communicating how important it is to put our love in the right place? Namely, as we see at the end, loving God. If we get this wrong, if we direct our love inward, and our primary affection is for my life and what I can get from it, then could it be that Paul's trying to say that our humanity completely unravels, and all these nasty behaviors in this list show up, that our hearts shrink, and we morph into something far more animal-like and predatory um, than bearing the image of God, as humans uh, were intended to do. So, Creekside, I, I ask you the rather kind of blunt question, um, are you a lover of God? Do you desire to spend time with him? Do you, want to spend, do you want to know more about who he is, what he's all about, and his work in the world? Um, Are you in awe of him and his beauty and glory and desire to gaze upon that beauty? Are you committed to him and you wake up daily reminding yourself, I belong to Jesus my entire life? And I don't bring up these questions um, to condemn at all because I know how weak and measly my love is for God. Um... But rather, I think the first step towards growing in our love for God is just waking up to the fact that maybe I don't really love him all that much. And my affection my, and my heart is found in the wrong places. So if this is you uh, this morning and the Spirit impresses that upon your heart, that your love is misdirected, your love is disordered, um, this is good news. God already knows that's where your heart's at. Um, and he's waiting for you and wants you to return to him and start loving him like he loves you. Um, so we're going to talk more about this kind of later on. Um, uh, so let's just kind of put a pin in that discussion for now, and, and we'll get back into it. So let's, let's get back into the list. The list, again, is framed around what these people love. And then also, the first set of words that I want to highlight is, are the words proud and arrogant, which are the first two that come after uh, lovers of uh, self and lovers of money. And also, the, the last phrase, swollen with conceit, that's found in the middle of verse 4. Um, I, one thing I found interesting is all three of these words carry a, a similar meaning. you know, Pride, arrogance, conceit. That there is this self-focused, puffed-up, nature that loves oneself more than God and others. Um, so I think as I've kind of looked at the organization of this list, it's like framed around what you love. Inside that frame is pride, arrogance, conceit. It's kind of like a frame within a frame as it gets closer to like the middle of what the behaviors look like. Um, the, the next word I want to uh, spend some time on is that third word in the third verse, uh, which is the word slanderous. Um, I think the New American Standard version, I know some of us use that translation of the Bible, uh, translated as malicious gossips. Um, And the reason I want to take some time on, on this word is I think Paul wants this to stand out. And it doesn't show up in our English translations, but the four characteristics or four words that are leading up to slanderous and then the three words that follow slanderous all start with the same Greek letter alpha. So this Greek letter has the same usage as maybe our prefixes uh, like un or non. And that's why you see like unholy, ungrateful. Um, but not all of the words before slanderous and after, the four before and the three after, start with un because you can't, like, it kind of gets difficult to make it un. On heart, you know, in verse three, or without a, you know, it just so the the translators kind of uh, made a decision to not keep that rhetorical device that Paul is using. So, if this list of vices was maybe what was being read to its as it was being read to its original audience, that repetition of sound would have been hard to miss. Um, There would have you would have been hearing ah-something. Now, I'm not going to try to pronounce the Greek words because I would totally botch them, but they would all start with ah, with uh, the Greek uh, letter alpha. So it would be four times in a row like that, and then the word slanderous, and then three more words that start with that. So there's this this pattern and repetition and sound. And what that would do is the word slanderous breaks the pattern. So it would obviously make that word rise to the surface. Um, and it would be like, well, one of these things is not like the other, and it's the word slanderous. Um, so, I think Paul is trying to, like, um, when he wrote this to Timothy, uh, highlight that particular word. And in Greek, um, i try to pronounce this one uh, the word slanderous is diaboloi, diaboloi, where we get uh, diabolo, or the devil. Um, and the devil is the ultimate slanderer and accuser. So. According to some Bible dictionaries I was using, um, the slander, slanderous means falsely accusing, unjustly criticizing, to hurt, malign, condemn, and sever a relationship. By highlighting this word using this rhetorical device, could Paul be reminding us of the enemy's work in the world and his influence that causes all these nasty human behaviors? And could he be using it as a warning and a wake-up call to us to take this stuff seriously and to not get caught up in the enemy's schemes because this is, yeah, this is serious stuff. Another word I want to highlight um, and I think builds on Paul's warning to us to recognize the enemy's work in our world and in our hearts is the word treacherous, uh, which is the first word in verse 4. Um, uh, so similarly, I think Paul wanted that word to stand out more than the others, and the reason for this is because all the other words are adjectives in Greek, and that one is in a noun form. Um, so a literal translation across would have read traitor or betrayer instead of treacherous, someone who is treacherous. So you can imagine the list being read aloud to its original audience, and then you, hear, you just hear a list of adjectives describing a person, and then suddenly there's just this forceful noun that sticks out that doesn't fit in with the rest. And uh, that's the word treacherous. Um, and this, this word is used in two other places in the New Testament. Once it's in reference to Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, and once it's used in reference to the people who were executing Stephen, who was the, the first Christian martyr. So, again, I think what Paul, I think Paul is using this technique as a warning, again, and a wake-up call. That the enemy is at work. Don't get caught up in this. Um, This is dangerous and scary stuff. So it's an ugly picture. If we were to go through all of them and describe each characteristic, it's an ugly picture when we don't love God. And it's an ugly picture when we let the enemy have his work in our lives. And when our center of gravity becomes something other than God, it's catastrophe ensues. It's not pretty. Um... So, let's look, at, let's look at verse 5 now. Um, verse, verse 5 says, Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. So, as Paul's description continues, our minds are brought to think about people within the church. Up until that point, there was no uh, reason to think that we were dealing with people in the church, but this phrase definitely changes that. Um, these people, Paul is describing, have the form or the appearance of godliness, So in other words, they're doing all the right religious things, they're going through the motions, they're saying all the right Christian jargon, but they deny the power of the gospel. They deny Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, and uh, they deny the power of the Holy Spirit. And what does Paul tell Timothy to do with these people? He calls them to avoid them. uh, It's a harsh command. And I think this command to Timothy requires a bit of nuance. Um, Because back at the end of chapter 2, verse 25, you can look there, Paul tells Timothy, Correct your opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the the truth. Um, So clearly, Timothy, and by extension, us today, Um, should not avoid any person who opposes us, but we should engage with gentleness and patience. Um, Also, look at chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, verse 5. Paul, in that verse, uh, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Um, So Paul calls Timothy to do the work of an evangelist, which, in other words, is someone who shares the good news with those who haven't heard reaches out uh, to those outside of Christ in the life he offers. So clearly, we have to have a kind of a balanced approach to this avoid them um, command. And I think Paul's command to avoid such people is a a narrow category. And I think Paul describes uh, some people that are in that category in the next verse. So we can look at that one now in verse uh, 6. And we'll do verse 7. For among them... So, among these people in the last days uh, that have disordered loves and they have this empty religion, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth so let let 's tackle these two verses um, upon first read. Uh, it, it, it may seem like, like it did to me, uh, that this is, it's a pretty, it seems like a pretty derogatory perspective towards women. Um, did anybody else feel that maybe when you're reading it? Um, so let's not read these verses wrong because it's not doing that. Um, so don't read this as, well, of course it's the women who are being captured by false teaching. They're so gullible, unlike us men. Uh, don't think it's saying that. Uh, And don't also read this as, well, of course it's the women who are always learning and never are able to arrive at the truth. That's just how women are. Good thing they got us men around to hold their hands and explain things their little brains can't understand. Uh, (laughs) Clearly, (laughs) clearly that is not uh, what the text is saying because we know from Scripture, we know, uh, well, before I say that, we know... We know that scripture can be easily wielded to say harmful things. And just because you can use a Bible verse to do that doesn't mean that is what scripture is actually saying. And then, secondly, we know from scripture that both men and women bear God's image, that women are equally valued and equally loved by God our creator. We also know there's nothing inherently inferior about women, or that the mental capacity of a man is in a superior category. Um, if anything, maybe it's the other way around. <laughs> uh, uh, so please, let's not read th- these verses like that. Um, so if that's maybe the that, that is, the wrong way to read it, um, what's the right way? And I, this is my perspective. I think Paul is mentioning a specific situation that is happening in Ephesus where a group of women, and it could have been men, but in this particular situation, it was a group of women, they were being deceived by these false teachers that Paul has been talking about. So this is Paul describing facts on the ground, a particular trend that was happening in the church of Ephesus. And Paul isn't trying to teach Timothy universal principles about women or differences in gender. Here, Paul is trying to help Timothy with a real problem that's happening in the church in Ephesus. Um, So that's kind of how I see it. And how are these women described? Uh, It's It's not good, Uh, and I think it's instructive, and it's a warning actually for all of us, no matter men or women. It's instructive for for all of us this morning. So first, this group that is being led astray by the false teachers are described as weak. Um, Now this Greek word that's translated as weak could also be translated little or immature. In other words, these women were acting like children and not grown adults. They were being childish, self-centered, and naive. And I think Paul is saying, like, hey, in a way, like, stop acting like that. Don't be deceived by these false teachers. Second, these these women are burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. So these women were weighed down by past failures and the guilt and the shame of sin. So these past offenses were that they had committed had were heaped up on their shoulders and they were trapped under the weight of it and they were looking to anything or anyone to give them the answer how they could be freed from this weight and it's tragic that they turned to these false teachers that did not preach Christ because we know Christ offers us that freedom but they were just leading them astray and also, these women—they didn't have a moral compass or a disciplined life of principles and ethics, but rather they just did the things that felt good in the moment and the desires of the flesh that controlled them. They are also described as always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth, and this is also tragic because there is this eagerness to learn, and um, eagerness to learn and find the answer, but they're never brought before the foot of the cross. Their learning never brought them to the saving message of Jesus and a life of faith in Him. Rather, they were deceived by these Christian phonies who seemed like a Jesus follower on the outside, but their message, once you got past all the smoke and mirrors, was just empty and self-centered and self-serving. And that's where they ended up landing. So how does how does how does this apply to us? Um, how can we protect ourselves from being deceived by false teaching? Because the false teaching was happening back in 2,000 years ago in the church of Ephesus, and it still happens today. So it's interesting to see how the sin, this and this was kind of a, uh, something I definitely learned from this passage. It's interesting to see how the sin and the guilt and shame of these women made them vulnerable and made them susceptible to following the false teaching. My mind usually doesn't go there. So if if we have unconfessed sin... Um, this morning that we have not brought before Jesus, do that today. Because uh, and, and we're going to be uh, partaking in the Lord's Supper. We're going to have communion. That's a great time to do that, to bring that, that guilt and that shame and that sin to Christ and let him take it so you can be freed of it. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it's interesting that, that that has actually made them more susceptible and vulnerable to being led astray. Um, so for us, cleansing ourselves of sin by bringing it to the cross... And then begin following Jesus again in that area of your life. Um, this will help protect us from listening to the wrong voices, um, which is a teaching that I is definitely something that I took away from this study. Also, it's instructive to us to see that the amount of time in study does not equate to you getting closer to the gospel. So it is possible to be always filling your mind with things found in the Bible or things from Christian culture or maybe things that seem Christian, but ultimately it never gets you to the knowledge of of the truth, a knowledge that makes one wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. Um, So may we be a church that focuses our attention on, on the historic and apostolic message of the gospel, which is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures; that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And may that may we never swerve from that, because that is the thing that that is the message that transforms. Um, so let's let's look at uh, verses eight and nine now. Um, and uh, it, I think it's it's important. Um, it is important that we are aware of the threats against us. Um, in fact Paul finds it important to warn, warn Timothy of these things to warn Timothy of the false teachers um, to not be naive like the first verse I kind of get that feeling Like, understand this, you're living in difficult times and people will be like this so don't be naive um, understand this is, the, this is the world that we live in so Paul warns Timothy and, and calls Timothy to warn the church about it and we should take that to heart as well So it's big enough to mention, but Paul um, tells Timothy, and the Spirit tells us today, that we shouldn't overreact against or obsess over the threat. And why? Because in verse 9, we know the end of the story. Uh, We know that the false teachers and the enemy and sin will only get so far. So we should be aware, uh, but we shouldn't overreact or obsess over this. So verse 8 and 9 says just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses so these men also oppose the truth men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith but they will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men When I first read this passage I was like who the heck are Janus and Jambres I have no idea this is like I am so confused uh, but it's actually a really cool comparison once you find out that Paul is making by referencing a story from early on in the story of God's people. Um, so according to Jewish and Christian tradition, Janus and Jambres uh, were the magicians or the sorcerers uh, who opposed Moses before Pharaoh in Exodus uh, 7. Uh, so, you know, the characters in uh, the movie Prince of Egypt, have you seen that one? Okay, uh, It's the, the, the characters who are voiced by Steve Martin and Martin Short. Okay, <laughs> what, One of them is like tall and skinny, the other one's uh, short and fat in the movie. And uh, that's Janice and Jambres. So, maybe, if you've seen Prince of Egypt, it's a great movie. Uh, maybe that helps you. So, they're, they're the guys, when Moses uh, threw down Aaron's rod... And it became a snake. Janice and Jambries did the exact same thing. They, they took their rods and like, hey, we can match this. Boom. And their rods, walking sticks, become snakes. And what happens in, in Exodus 7? Do you guys remember? Uh, what? Yeah, yeah. The, the, the staff that Moses put down and turned into the snake swallowed up the, the snakes that Janice and Jambries put down, which is a super, super powerful message. Um, of of, uh, these false teachers. And Janus and Jambres continued to oppose Moses, if you go back to read Exodus 7. And they tried to mimic the plagues that were being sent by God to Egypt through Moses. Um, But they could not match the power or fully replicate the miracles. They tried, and they kind of succeeded, but it it only got so far. They only were able to accomplish so much. So the false teachers in Ephesus uh, were similar, Janus and Jambres did miracles similar to Moses, and the false teachers in Ephesus, they would say and do things that were similar to Paul and his ministry, similar to the teachers of the truth of the gospel, but ultimately, these false teachers oppose the truth. They capture and enslave their followers, and their teaching leads to death and defeat. So verse 9, these false teachers that are creeping into households will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. So the folly of Janus and Jambres was exposed. Their folly was exposed. And the folly the folly of these false teachers in Ephesus and the false teachers of our day will be exposed as well, which is good news. There's great hope in that. So uh, Creekside, as we as we uh, look to wrap up, um, how are we how are we doing um, in these difficult last days that we live in? Are we are we naive uh, to the enemy's activity, the sin in our own hearts? Do we even understand that these are the times that we live in today in 2022? Also, what are we doing to ensure that we don't get sucked into the vortex of this ugly portrait of sinful humanity? Do we we blend more into the portrait that is painted in these nine verses that we looked at this morning, or do we resemble more closely to the life that is found in Christ? The life that was briefly described at the beginning through chapters 1 and 2 of 2 Timothy. So, with... With those questions uh, lingering in your mind, uh, I do want to call Aaron and the team back up. And I also want to take some time to prepare our, our hearts and our minds for a time of partaking in the Lord's Supper, um, communion. Um, to do that, I, I want to uh, call us back to when we were discuss, discuss the, <laughs> discussing the question of what do you love? Um, If it is true that our behavior and the way that we live our lives finds its source in what our hearts love, then this question becomes crucial for us. So what is your first and primary love this morning? Is it Christ or is it something or someone else? No matter if you've been following Jesus for seven days or seven decades, we can all grow in our love for our Savior. We can all grow in our love for Jesus. And I think what better practice than communion to remind us of who God is and what he has done for us. And I think growing, growing in love for someone entails taking time to receive love from them. So, listen to what the Apostle John, a disciple of Jesus, says in um, 1 John 4, uh, verses 7 through 11, and then uh, verse 19. It says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then if we skip down to verse 19 of that chapter, it says, we love because he first loved us. So as we take communion uh, together this morning, let us receive this love from God. This love that he initiated. He loves you before you loved him. So when he calls us to love him, He got it all started. He loves you even if you don't love him at all. Maybe if you're not in Christ and you don't love God, he still loves you. And because of this love for you, God sent his only son to this broken, sinful world so that you might have his life, that you might live through him, as 1 John says. He sent his only son as a sacrifice, dying a death on the cross to atone for your sins a sacrifice to clear away your sins and the guilt and the shame and the condemnation that comes with it. He sent his son as a sacrifice to clear away the damage that you have done to your relationship with him so that you might have life in him, so that your life might look more like Jesus and less like the first nine verses of 2 Timothy that we looked at today. So this, this bread and this cup that we partake in as a church family, it points our hearts and our minds to the body and the blood of Jesus. As we eat the bread, as we drink the cup together, we are saying by faith that we receive the gift of Christ. We are asking him to cleanse us of our sin and unite us to himself and unite us to one another. So may this be a time uh, that your love for Jesus grows warmer, that this time is a time where your love grows stronger, and your love grows more committed to Christ. So if you're in Christ, if you have given yourself to him, I invite you uh, to come grab the elements, uh, the bread and the cup, and then return to your seat. Um, And then after everyone has had a a chance to grab the elements, um, I will come back up here and lead us in a time where we eat of the bread and drink of the cup
1: it's been a privilege to gather with all of you and worship together and I just want to read uh, a short benediction a sort of a charge uh, as we go forth and you can read these words on the screen with me Um, uh, not with me just listen to them (laughs) given the choice of shame or glory let me choose glory given the choice of this moment or eternity let me choose in this moment what is eternal given the choice of the easy this easy pleasure or the harder road of the cross give me the grace to choose to follow you knowing that there is nowhere apart from your presence where i might find the peace i long for no lasting satisfaction apart from your reclamation of my heart let me build then my king a beautiful thing by long obedience by the steady progression of small choices that laid end to end will become like the stones of a blessed blessed, pleasing path stretching to eternity until your welcoming arms and unto the sound of your voice pronouncing the judgment. Well done.